Well, let me begin with uh, a question, a, a couple of questions, actually a series of questions and um, a couple of things I would like for you to imagine. How many of you have been to someplace very beautiful? Show of hands. Someplace very beautiful. And I, I imagine it's, you've traveled, how many of you have traveled quite a distance to get to that place, okay? In, um, very good. We have, uh, we, we had the meetings with the guys, and one of the first questions I asked the guys was, um, uh, if you could go anywhere in the world, where would you go? And they gave fascinating places like Australia and New Zealand and, um, and Europe and England and, and many of these, I was thinking, oh, those would be beautiful places to go to. So, so what I want you to do is picture that beautiful place that you've been and how many of you have taken pictures of this beautiful place? Okay, taking pictures, very good. And now you've come back, you've returned from this trip to this beautiful place, you've taken pictures and you're sharing with friends and family members and loved ones about this beautiful place. And you show them the pictures. And they look at the pictures and they go, oh, those are really beautiful. This is really nice. And you're like, yeah, but you, you really needed to see it. I mean, it was, I mean, it's I'm glad you like my pictures, but, you know, there just was something missing, right? Now, imagine this. Imagine you have come into, you've been blessed in some particular way, and you now have the opportunity to bring all of your friends and family and loved ones to that beautiful place so that they could see that place for themselves with their own eyes, not from pictures. And you rush to your friends and family, you gather them all together and you're going to say, okay, here's some good news. I've got some good news. I'm going to take you so you could go see this place, go see the real thing. How many of your friends or family members in your imagination would say, that's really very kind of you, but you already showed me the pictures. I don't need to go, right? <laughs> and you're like, I mean, it doesn't matter if you showed the pictures, if you printed them on huge, glossy and high def and, you know, a 20 megapixel camera and you showed them on a big plasma screen picture. You're like, wait, you really need to go to see the real thing, right? So no matter how good they are, pictures are no substitute for the real thing. Would you agree? No matter how good they are, pictures are no substitute for the real thing. Now that idea applies to this morning's teaching and actually for the next series of, of teachings because the writer of Hebrews, the preacher of Hebrews, this is a sermon that's written down, sent to a congregation. This preacher of Hebrews is now getting to the heart of his argument. He has a message that he needs to bring to this congregation, a word from God that they desperately need to hear. And so he's, uh, he, he's really kind of driving home his point and he's building a, a long case that actually spans from chapter seven all the way through to chapter 10. And so this congregation had become Christians. This is, you know, in the middle of the first century, probably in the sixties AD, they um, had heard this story about Jesus, Jesus who uh, a Jesus who lived a perfectly righteous life in uh, the region of Israel, but then uh, who apparently had offended some of the religious leaders of the day, and they seized him, arrested him, and put him on a cross and killed him. 
We come to find out that this was all part of his plan. And that God raised him from the dead as if to say he's the one. He is the one that the Old Testament and everybody was pointing to and, and promising. And so this, this little group of people inside of Jerusalem where Jesus was killed and where he was uh, put into a grave and where he came back to life. That message spread all throughout uh, to the ends of the earth, as Luke puts it in the book of Acts. And that news reached this congregation. And this congregation, unlike uh, ours, was filled with people who had embraced that news, that announcement that Jesus had come, Jesus had died, and Jesus had been brought back to life for our sins and for our salvation. And many of them, many of this congregation had come from a background in Judaism, the Old Testament religion. The religion of the Jewish people. And now they were under a great deal of strain to now leave Christ and to turn back to Judaism. And the preacher, his message that he says to this congregation is, no, friends, don't do that. Don't turn away from Christ and to back to Judaism because Jesus is the real thing. Judaism are the pictures. As a matter of fact, you could put it this way. Um, the, the Old Testament was a shadow, but Jesus is the substance. That the shadow and all of it was pointing to, to Jesus. Or you could say it this way, that they were foreshadows or promises. The Old Testament is filled with foreshadowing and promising of this coming person. And that Jesus is that person. Or as we can put it from our analogy with the, uh, our friends and a beautiful place you've been with pictures. Jesus is the real thing. And Judaism is just the pictures. Jesus is the real thing. And as we've seen throughout Hebrews, Jesus is greater than the prophets. Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. And as we're going to see the preacher saying, and Jesus is actually greater than the high priest. He's greater than the sacrifices. And he's greater than the temple where this institution, all of these institutions takes place in Jerusalem. And we're going to unpack that in the next several weeks in our course through Hebrews. Um, but I want to begin with a request. Can I ask you a favor? Nobody responded. So does that mean no? <laughs> okay, so I'm going to ask you a favor and I'm going to begin with a request. One time Jesus was asked which, which of the commandments was the greatest. And Jesus actually quoting from Deuteronomy. He says, uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. And as Mark records for us in Mark chapter 12, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. There's some messages that help us to love the Lord our God with all our heart. There's some messages that help us to love the Lord our God with all of our soul. This is one of those uh, messages and studies where we need to love the Lord our God with all of our mind. So I'm going to ask you to put on your godly thinking caps this morning because it's a lot of details. Uh, but I, I pray that, um, that we love the Lord our God with all of our mind because of what the preacher is arguing today. Can I ask that of you? 
Great. And so I've made a very detailed outline uh, as we go through these passages, uh, fill those out and uh, we will we will get started. So the preacher of Hebrews begins by pointing out two figures that he has already mentioned two figures. So this first point is two figures. And the first figure, this person that he has already mentioned was Abraham, Abraham. We talked about Abraham a couple of weeks ago. For those of you who are here, remember uh, two weeks ago, I, I sang, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. Okay, and I, I sang that whole thing. And there was an audible groan in the second row where my family sits. <laughs> I was sharing this before that week. I had shared with my um, family, hey, I'm thinking about singing the Father Abraham song. And they were like, no, don't, don't do it. And I was like, why? And Amelia, my oldest, goes, you want them to come back. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> so how many of you are here when I, when I sang? Thank you for coming back. Very good. See, they came back. Uh, so that's our first figure, Abraham. And we can say this. No person in all of Judaism was more important than Abraham because he was the patriarch. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, 14 chapters are dedicated to this person, Abraham, who God calls. And he says, I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a blessing. Uh, and all of the world will be blessed through you. Those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. And then he makes the promise. You're going to have descendants who are going to be no, more numerous than the stars in the sky and more numerous than the sand on the seashore. And Abraham's like, this is great. But I didn't, he didn't even have one child at that point. But God made promise after promise after promise. And as we saw that week, God swore a promise. He goes, now I promise you I'm going to do this for you because you did not, you wouldn't, did not withhold your son, your only son, Isaac. I promise and I actually swear by my name. I swear by me that this will happen, that this will come true. So that's Abraham. He's the father. Abraham gave uh, birth to, the, he begat Isaac. Uh, Isaac um, gave birth to Jacob. Well, he didn't himself. You know what I'm talking about. Um, Isaac gave birth to Jacob. And Jacob, whose name gets changed to Israel by God. And Israel has 12 sons and they become the tribe, the nation of Israel. Those tribes including like Judah and Simeon and uh, Ephraim and Naphtali and Dan and all of these tribes. And one of those tribes is Levi. And we'll get to him in a moment. So Abraham, no person was greater in all of Judaism than Abraham. So it makes sense that he would introduce the figure Abraham. And a second uh, figure is Melchizedek. Melchizedek. And I'll say this. No person was more mysterious in the Old Testament than Melchizedek. Part of the reason is, is because he only occurs, he occurs three in three verses in Genesis and he occurs in one verse 800 years later in one of David's Psalms. And that's it in the entire Old Testament, four verses. But yet Abraham, or excuse me, Melchizedek ends up being um, so he's one of the most mysterious persons. Now, there's a lot of characters who just show up in the Old Testament scriptures and then kind of disappear, you know, have these small little bit parts and those kind of things. But at least they have the decency of not being important. 
We're going to find out Melchizedek is important, very, very important, and is part of the argument that the preacher of Hebrews is making here. So there's two figures, Abraham and Melchizedek. Now, there's two principles I want you to understand before we get into the text, because you'll be able to understand if you have this uh, kind of foundation going in, you'll be able to understand some of the, the, the things in the, te- in the text we'll be looking at. And those two principles are, first one, superiors generally, most of the time, there's some exceptions, but superiors generally bless inferiors. Superiors generally uh, bless inferiors. So, for example, a king might bless his subjects. Or a priest might bless a worshiper. Or fathers might bless their children or grandfathers will bless their grandchildren. So you see how that that works. Superiors usually bless. Now there's times when, you know, a a superior might be blessed by somebody who's kind of an inferior to them. But um, that's more like exalting them. But actually praying a prayer of blessing over someone was something that a superior did to an inferior. Does that make sense? Okay, one principle. The second principle is inferiors offered tithes and tributes to superiors. You have a couple of examples of uh, this in the New Testament, where, like, or in the Old Testament, where dignitaries from one country would come to a new king's coronation and they would bring offerings. This happened with Solomon when he dedicated the temple and dignitaries from other nations would come and bring gold and, and that kind of thing. You you understand this? This also happened with Jesus, by the way. When Jesus was born, you had the Magi coming from the east, and they were saying, where is the king of the Jews who has been born? And they brought gold and incense and myrrh. You see, so they were saying, they were trying to exalt and say, this is a superior. So two things. Uh, Superiors generally blessed inferiors, and inferiors would offer tithes and tributes to superiors. So there's two figures, two principles, and now we're going to get to our two texts this morning. And the first text is Genesis chapter 14. So hold your finger in um, Hebrews chapter 7, and we're going to do Genesis chapter 14. If I seem excited, it's because I kind of get excited about this Melchizedek thing, which is like shows you how much maybe of a dork I am, but... Um, But I hope you share in my excitement. So in Genesis chapter 14, you have this event that takes place and begins in verse one. You have four kings going to war against five kings. All right. And so um, the the four kings. Oh, I forgot to put the map in. You have four kings going to war against five kings. Now, if you can picture um, kind of over near where the Dead Sea was for many of you have seen, you know, the map of Israel. So they go and make war, and uh, the, the one group of kings uh, is winning, and another group of kings start to take away. And some of those kings, in, one of those kings includes the king of Sodom. Okay, you've heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, they were in alliance together, and those kings start to flee and run away. And so the other kings are chasing them as they're running away, and they seized all of their property and all of the persons, and they took them captive. And um, and one of the persons that they took captive was Abraham's nephew. So when Abraham gets word that this had happened, he summons a whole bunch of his men, 318 of his men, and they go after those kings. And they chase them all the way 
like 130 miles north, almost up to Damascus. And they win. And they gather back all of the people and all of the plunder and everything that was stolen, the, go the gold and the goods and the animals. And so Abraham and his mighty warriors are bringing them back. So you guys got the story. That's the, that's the setting. And as he's on his way back and he's passing by Jerusalem, this event happens. And it begins, follow with me in verse, um, verse begin, we'll, we'll begin in verse 16. Of Genesis 14. Then he brought back all of the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Now, in verse 17, it says, after his return from the defeat of Kedoloamer, that's one of the, the bad kings and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Skip verses 18 through 20 and go down to verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abraham, or excuse me, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, all capital letters, Yahweh. I have lifted my hand to the Lord God, most high possessor of heaven and earth, that I should not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but the, what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. So Abraham takes nothing. So he's on his way back and it says that uh, he's coming by and he meets this Sodom. And this king of Sodom says, well, you, here I, you could take these things. He says, no, 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 I'm not taking a thing from you. Matter of fact, we're not even taking anything except for what my guys have already got in their stomachs. But right in the middle of this little passage are those three verses stuffed in there. Notice how it says in verse 17, um, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. So right in the presence of when Abraham meets this, uh, this king of Sodom, you have this interesting event happens. Look in verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high and he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then it says, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. There's Melchizedek. But there's a couple of things that are very interesting for us to know about this Melchizedek. First, the meaning of his name. Melchizedek, it's a combination of two words, uh, Melech meaning king and Sadiq meaning righteousness. So it's Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness or more technically, my king is righteous. So that's what his name means in Hebrew. That's Melchizedek. But there's a second point we need to uh, understand. And that is, so not only the meaning of his name, but the title that he holds, the title that he holds right there in verse 18 King of Salem, King of Salem. Now, this is uh, Salem is a derivative of the word Shalom. How many of you have heard the word Shalom? That's the Hebrew word for peace. So he's the king of uh, this place called peace. 
And many believe, and I believe this as well too, that this is actually uh, one of the ancient names of the city of Jerusalem. For two reasons. One, it says, uh, and they went out to meet him at the Valley of Sheba, that's the King's Valley. Uh, we learn later in the New Testament that's a valley right out just east of Jerusalem in the Kidron Valley. One. But two, you even see the name Salem in the word Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And so they think that this is this was probably outside of Jerusalem where this episode happens. And so he's the king of an ancient, like a pre-Jerusalem Jerusalem. Okay, so there's the meaning of his name and the title that he holds. And now, um, did you get all of those? You, everybody got? Okay. Um, and then the third thing is the role that this Melchizedek plays. The role that he plays. And it says he brought out bread and wine. And then to explain why it is that he brought that out, in parentheses it says, he was priest of God most high. Two things are interesting about this. The first is that this is the first time the word priest is used in the Old Testament. The very first priest, you know, the Old Testament's filled with this idea of priest and priesthood. This is the first time priest is mentioned. That's one. And the second thing is that uh, he is priest of the God Most High, El Elyon. And then as it says, possessor of heaven and earth. This is the one true God. Which is interesting. Just, well, we'll get back to it. So the um, first thing is the meaning of his name, the title that he holds, the role that he plays, priest of God Most High. Number four is the blessing that he gives. He comes out and meets Abram and says, blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Remember one of our principles? Superiors uh, generally bless inferiors. Something to keep in mind there. And the fourth and the fifth thing is the tithe he receives. The end of verse 20 says, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So those five things are very important for us to think about. The meaning of his name, king of righteousness. The title that he holds, king of Salem or king of peace. The role that he plays, priest of God most high. The blessing that he gives. And the tithe that he receives. I mean, this is for those of us who are New Testament, uh, who are Christians, we kind of sit there and go, wow. His name means king of righteousness. He's king of peace. Which those two words alone, king of righteousness and king of peace, is used elsewhere in the New Testament for the Messiah. And so it's like, what is going on here? And he's a priest as well, too. In the, in the uh, law of Moses, it was forbidden. You couldn't be priest and a king at the same time. 
They said, no, 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 king and priest. As a matter of fact, Saul got in big trouble because he was waiting for the priest to come and do offerings before he was ready to go into battle. And he's waiting and he's waiting. He's like, where's that priest? And he goes, fine, just give me the sacrifices. And that's when God said, that's it. You're done. You're cut off. So you couldn't do priest and king at the same time. And here you have the priest of God most high in Jerusalem. His name's king of righteousness and he's king of peace. And, and he's king and priest. This is... This is very head-scratching stuff here. Okay, with that in mind, let's look at our text for the text, the second text, and that is Hebrews chapter 7. So now let's go to Hebrews chapter 7, and we'll look at what this writer is doing. Now, Kizedek's mentioned a couple of times in chapter 5, and then when we saw last week, as we talked about our anchor of the soul that enters into the inner place, the hope that goes behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, and then it ended with having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And now he starts to explain Melchizedek. And so there's four points from Hebrews chapter 7 that build off of everything that we have learned in Genesis chapter 14. For this Melchizedek, in the first couple of verses, he's just uh, he's telling you what happened in Genesis 14. For this Melchizedek... King of, what does it say? Salem. Priest of Most High God. Met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings. And so that was that whole episode there. That just sounds like WWE, doesn't it? The slaughter of the kings. Um, and so he's returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And then in verse 2, and to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. Now, so he's just surveyed everything. Now he's going to do some interpretive work for you. So now he's, he's kind of read the text and now he's going to say, now let me tell you what this means. And he says this, he is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, which is, or that is, and what does it say? King of peace. And then he makes these very interesting statements in verse three. He is without father. Or mother or genealogy, having no beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. So the first point is Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Melchizedek, this person who shows up in four verses, is clear from the Old Testament itself, the writer is saying, that he's actually greater than Abraham. Right? Because, you know, he blesses Abraham. Superiors and bless the inferiors. He, Abraham, offered tithes to Melchizedek. Well, you didn't do that unless he was a, a superior of some kind. And he continued to get some more of this idea as well, too. Um, when it says in verse 4, um, Verse four, it says, see how great this man, Melchizedek, was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. Like the writer said, see how great this guy is. Abraham. Our father, Abraham, who had many sons, the patriarch. As great as Abraham was, Melchizedek is great. Because he received a blessing from Melchizedek, and he gave offerings and tributes to Melchizedek, this mysterious person. So that's the first point of his argument. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. 
And second point is, Abraham is greater than his descendants, Levi. Let's read the rest of the passage, verse 5. And those descendants of Levi. Now, let me bring up a point why he says Levi. As I told you, um, Abraham's descendants. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob became the twelve uh, tribe. He named his, uh, changed his name. God changed his name to Israel. And then he had twelve tribes. One of those tribes being the tribe of Levi. And it was from the tribe of Levi that God said, actually, give me the Levites and I'm going to make them priests. So all of the priests that will serve me in my tabernacle in the temple will come from Levi, one of the 12 sons of Israel. So that's why he's bringing up Levi right here. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. So. All of the people of Israel were to give tithes and offerings to the Levites. Um, side note, do you know why? Because when the Israelites came into the land, uh, they gave all of the tribes uh, a land and he split Joseph in half and he gave them a double portion, Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Levites don't have any land because the Levites were supposed to be, you know, everywhere and around the temple. So the Levites had no land. That's why they had to receive tithes and offerings from the others. So that's why it's in the law. Have a commandment in the law to receive tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. There again, it's reaffirming, reaffirming the first point about Melchizedek being greater than Abraham. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. There's our principle. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal man, but in the other case, by him of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestors. So meaning uh, Abraham is greater because... Uh, because he's the great, great grandfather of Levi and all of the descendants. And so in a way, he was he was in he was inside of Abraham. So in a way, that's kind of reinforcing this idea that Abraham is greater than Levi and that Levi is actually offering uh, tributes to Melchizedek through Abraham. Does this sound confusing? OK, what you need to know is this. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And Abraham is greater than Levi, his great-great-grandsons. And therefore, Melchizedek, the priest, king, is greater than Levi and the high priests. Melchizedek, the priest, is greater than Levi and his descendants, the high priests. And you really get, you really kind of tie this all together in verse three. So let's read verse three again about Melchizedek. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. So um, he just shows up. We don't have any record of who his parents were. Just about how many of you have read through parts of the Old Testament and you go, hey, they seem really important about knowing where your family is. Right. You know, uh, Abraham begat and they begat and then Jehoshaphat begat. And then they have all of these things. And knowing your genealogy was very important. And you have this very important figure showing up. 
No parents. No genealogical record anywhere. Now, Levites, on the other hand, you couldn't be a priest to serve unless you were able to prove you were of that descendant in line. This amazing figure shows up without father, without mother, without genealogy. But here's the interesting phrase, and it gets to our fourth point that, that will uh, tie this all together. But resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. Jesus is greater than them all. Jesus is greater than them all. Several times the writer of Hebrews has said, uh, friends, we have a high priest. We have a great high priest who's gone into the heavens. We have a high priest who's not unable to sympathize with our weakness. We've covered these before. But now what he's saying is, um, let me just clear this up for you. The Levitical priesthood that you think is so important that you want to turn from Jesus to go back to worshiping according to the Levitical priesthood in the temple. That's actually inferior to Abraham. And Abraham is actually inferior to Melchizedek, this mysterious person, king of righteousness, king of peace. And Melchizedek resembles the son of God. Notice he says Melchizedek, uh, that he doesn't say that the son of God resembles Melchizedek. In the, what it really says is actually Melchizedek, this mysterious person, was made like the son of God who lives forever. Melchizedek is the picture. Melchizedek is the picture. And that picture blessed Abraham. And Abraham gave the picture all of these things. And the entire Levitical system that you, that you, this congregation, you want to go back to. He served Abraham and Abraham served Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is the picture of the one he is a, he's a picture of. The one he resembles. You guys getting this? I know you do. This is, a, this is, we needed our thinking caps on, but this is a profound statement. Speaking to a congregation that says, we're, we're going to turn away from Christ and we're going to go back to worshiping. I want to go back to the priest. I want to go offer him an animal so he can take that animal and splash the blood around. And he's saying, that's just the pictures. And there's one that's better than that. And that's just a picture. You have the real thing in Jesus. Melchizedek is a picture of the true high priest that far exceeds any earthly priesthood. And Jesus is our true and eternal high priest who intercedes for us, who prays for us. Who mediates between God and us. I've said this before. Um, that with the coming of Jesus. The, uh, many, have, many think that well we don't need a priesthood or sacrifice. You know, we don't need a priesthood anymore. Um, no we still have a priesthood. We just have one priest who lives forever. Forever. No other earthly priesthood will work. 
So Jesus is our eternal high priest. The resurrected, exalted Jesus is the eternal son of God and the high priest forever. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples and he prayed a priestly, a high priestly prayer for them. That God would protect them because he knew what was coming that following day. And the night before that Jesus went to the cross for their sins and for your sins and my sins, he was his priestly activity was coming into picture. His priestly function was coming into full view. And on that same night when he prayed this priestly prayer and he was looking at his high priestly activity of offering him himself and his own blood, he brought bread and wine. He had a supper with his disciples to mark this occasion. I, I think it's interesting. Melchizedek did the same thing. We saw this in Genesis 14, right? And it says in Melchizedek, the priest or the king of Salem brought out bread and wine because he was the priest of God most high. Today, we're going to take the bread and the wine that commemorates what Christ did for us, that priestly activity that he did on our behalf. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took the cup and he says, this cup is a new covenant of my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. He took the bread and he took the wine. And we're going to take that bread and that wine to remind ourselves. And as we do, can we think, think of Jesus, our high priest. Of whom Melchizedek is a picture. And he's our high priest forever. No end of days. So when uh, the music uh, starts, feel free to come up and take the elements um, when you're ready.